Today, we're talking about how to get better at written rhythms. Hello, and welcome to the Musician Toolkit. This is episode number 38, and I'm your host, David Lane. It is great to be with you today. We're now in September, so happy Labor Day. I'm now a few days away from flying up to New York for the first workshop and reading of a new musical that I've been frantically arranging this month, and I'm excited about that. Uh, As I mentioned before in a previous episode, send me a message if you're a listener who happens to be in the Albany area. I'd love to meet you. I'd love to chat if if we can arrange the time. Uh, Also, if you have any tips for navigating the Newark Airport or upstate New York or anywhere in between please let me know. Okay, so one of the tools of musicianship that I mentioned back in episode one that we've never really discussed is the ability to quickly and accurately figure out written rhythms. Now, why so specific? Why written rhythm instead of just talking about rhythm in general? Well, I cover that in the interview I'm about to share, so I won't be redundant. I just want to say that I really enjoyed this conversation that I'm going to share. In a way, I hate to say that because it sounds like I didn't enjoy conversations from other guests when I don't make that claim. And that's not at all true because I've never shared a conversation here on this podcast feed that I didn't enjoy. But there are some chats that stick out more than others. And I love this talk for two reasons. First, my guest, David Krosner, is a friend from way back. We went to college together, and we not only played in band and orchestra together, but we also played in a band together that we formed, and we'll talk more about that. Second, I didn't expect this to be a very long chat. How, how much can we really talk about written rhythms is kind of my thought going into it. Well, the answer is quite a bit, and a lot of that is because of how much my guest has thought about this in the past and all the very interesting things that he adds to what I was expecting going in. We're going to talk about finding the big beats even in complicated rhythms and uh, how invaluable it is to learn rhythm patterns the way they look in the same way that you might learn vocabulary words, how to play polyrhythms, ways to improve the skill of rhythm, and much more. My guest David Krosner, he has been involved with all of the ages in the school system in the Atlanta metro area for over 20 years. He's also a percussionist, and he's going to help me today to explore this super important world of rhythm. So without further delay, here's my conversation with David Krosner. It's my pleasure today to be talking to my, my old friend and uh, classmate, David Krosner. Uh, David, I, I'm going to put you on the on the card as David, but I knew you as Dave, so I'm going to call you Dave. So. That's right. Um, you and my mom. Yep. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So we go back to uh, Jacksonville University, JU, where we played. Uh, I know we played in wind ensemble together, and I feel like I mean, we did that the whole time. I didn't know if we played an orchestra the whole time or if it was part-time or I couldn't remember, but... Uh, I played in all of the full orchestra stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, Usually timpani, uh, and that that was my favorite to do. Yeah. Um, But, uh, and then, you know, there was was always something, you know, whether it be a choral accompaniment or a musical that needed percussion or, you know modern dance class that was that was a lot of fun for me to play for i don't think you got to do any of those but no i didn't uh and you know i I wish i'd done more with dance also you know we have a we we know all the same teachers Uh, there there was one bit of advice that uh dr Shermer, our you know composition teacher extraordinaire said to me that i didn't follow when i was there and he told me that i should have gone over to introduce myself to the guy that was chair of the theater department and just offer to do anything I could with them as far as like composing music and so forth. And I'm, uh, that might be the only advice I, I didn't follow that he gave me, but I, you know, like everything else he told me, I, I should have followed it, you know, it, cause I ended up loving theater, but you know, I just found it 
12 years later, 13 years later. So, <laughs> oh, well, you know, I mean, I don't think theater cares when you love it. As long as you, as long as you find your way to it, you know? Right. Um, yeah, we, we started t hanging out in classes. I know we had a summer session together and we chatted a lot during lunch and, you know, we got to know each other's kind of musical tastes. And, uh, you know, I found out some of the funny th the things that you did for fun, like you were trying to learn a, a forehand marimba version of like box invention number eight at oh, one yeah. point. <laughs> and I think you were probably, you were my introduction to some bands like, uh, Frank Zappa, they might be giants. Oh. And um, probably a few others in there that I checked out, you know, because because you'd mentioned them. Um, but then sometime around uh, nine, late ninety four, early ninety five, you you said you were looking for a, a mandolist and an accordion player for a band, and those were two instruments that I knew how to play, but not with any any degree of excellence. And uh, I got to join your band, which was called Elemento. Which, uh, for you know, for those, you know, this is a podcast, can't see it written down. It's like spell the word element, but take out the T at the end and put an O. And it's like the alphabet, L-M-N-O-P, <laughs> which, which had, we had original songs, L-M-N-O, um, White Noise, Shaving God's Back, <laughs> and a bunch yeah. of other, and, and some great covers. Like, I still hear, please, please uh, do not please go. Please do not go. Yeah. That was a wonderful than leaving on a funk plane, our... <laughs> yeah. our uh... Or funk version of John Denver. It was fantastic. I still play that one. So this band, uh, yeah, so I just mentioned, you know, as a hint, it, it was a little unorthodox. I'm playing accordion and mandolin. And uh, you are the lead singer playing on some kunga drums. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have a bassist. We had a tuba player. Had a tuba player. And, and we had, as we called him, the token guitar guy, because you always got to have one. Right. Yeah. Um, right. I was just thinking before we, before, when I was thinking about our talk, the day, the year we formed that band were, that was closer to when Led Zeppelin's first album came out than it is this conversation. But <laughs> I mean, don't, don't go there. <laughs> One, that is the first time that anything I did was said in the same sentence as Led Zeppelin. <laughs> and yes, I can understand the laughter. <laughs> huge zeppelin fan yep uh, but yeah it's funny by the optics elemento looked like a polka band you know if you yep. if you didn't hear us play and you just saw what we were you know just saw us yeah you would say like okay there's an accordion there's a mandolin there's a guitar there's some percussion i mean basically it followed the eastern european street music yep <laughs> um, which is funny because you know, 30 years later, I start a community klezmer band. It's got the same instrumentation as Elemena. Right. <laughs> Only I've got a better horn section now. I, you know, in, in addition to tuba, I have a horn section. Right. We did expand it out to flute. Um, we did. And yeah, we played we played great venues like the, uh, the Atlantic Boulevard Barnes and Noble and the Milk yeah. Bar. It's huge there. <laughs> You, there's we there's even bootleg like recordings books, you can hear the coffee. you you can hear the coffee being made and the dishes being cleaned you know the bus it's fantastic yeah <laughs> yeah um well so that we had a lot of fun in college and and that was a great memory and uh and i guess we kind of mentioned you you were there as a percussionist and i believe yes. you got your degree in music education if i'm not mistaken i did i did so uh got my degree in music ed I uh, went straight from JU. I moved back to Georgia, uh, where I was uh, raised, and uh, got a job teaching middle school band. And I was a middle school band director for a number of years. I was a high school band director for a number of years after that. Uh, then had our second child and realized that I really needed to have a, a different life than what I had as a, as a band guy, although I love I love that world and I'm still involved in it, went over to teaching elementary music. And I did that for another 10 years. Um, and just it's it's been it's been a crazy journey. It's been a lot of fun. I, I retire in two years. Wow. That's isn't that crazy? Wow. Two years. Uh, but all the things that I've gotten to do, I've 
I, I wrote a recorder book, mm-hmm. published it, yep. sold dozens of copies, um, you know, uh, made tens of dollars in profit on my <laughs> stuff. I mean, it's, it's really fantastic. Um, and then, you know, I get to, I'm currently, I'm teaching some music classes at uh, Piedmont University uh, here in Georgia, uh, as well as some education classes. Um but it's crazy because it all kind of starts from a seed. Yeah. It starts from what I wanted to say was the thing that I think benefited both me and you mm-hmm. was the smallness and the intimacy of a school like Jacksonville. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I would not have been able to succeed outside of there. I yeah. needed that. I needed the small class size, but more importantly, I needed the relationships and the opportunity that I could get from that small school. Yeah. Um, we had our our first theory professor, uh, Joe Haygood. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think you had Joe Haygood, I, did, I did you? Yep. You did. Okay. So I remember being, and I'm sorry if I'm off on a tangent here. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> okay. So I, I remember being probably 18 or 19 years old. Um, so again, this is just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And uh, we were in the dorms. And I remember I had gone out and done stupid 18 or 19 year old boy things <laughs> and just decided I wasn't going to go to class. This is before cell phones or any of that other stuff. And I get a knock at my door about three o'clock in the afternoon. And I open the door and it's Joe Haygood. Mm-hmm. And he says, David, I didn't see you at class today. I wanted to make sure you're okay. I know your family lives lives in Georgia. So if you need anything, you just let me know and I can bring you something. Mm-hmm. I was so floored. But he, look, here it is over 30 years later. And I'm telling this story. And in my mind, it happened yesterday. Yeah. I can picture the man sitting at my, you know, standing at my door. And uh, it was in that moment that I said, one, I can never skip class here. <laughs> I have to be at everything. And two, this doesn't happen in other places. Yep. Um, so that was really special to me. And, uh, you know, as a result of that, and I said also opportunity, mm-hmm. uh, we were able to do stuff in Jacksonville very at a very young age because there weren't as many people doing it. Right. You yeah, know, you're talking about we professionally. Were, yeah. I'm t- professionally. Yeah. I was able to play in places, play, you know, open for different bands or play as a guest with different bands that I never would have had the opportunity to do. I was doing that at, you know, 19, 20, 21. Yep. Really, really cool. Yeah. And uh, that was, to me, that was part of the beauty of, of that small school. So you've had a great career. Uh, you know, I, I I know you didn't mention everything that you've done. You've uh, I know you've you know you're you're one of those musicians that actually loves music theory and that you've you've oh, taught yeah. music theory and so forth. And so I wanted to talk to you because uh, I have thus far through I'm not even sure how many episodes it'll be when this comes out. It's thirty something. <laughs> um, awesome. I've come up I, I've come up with a list of. 21 tools that I think every musician should have in some form or another to have a complete toolkit to be a well-rounded musician. And one of them that I specified is that musicians need to be good at playing written rhythms. And to me, it's kind of like if, if I was to like, where does this tool go? It goes right next to sight reading. So when we talk about sight reading, uh, I mean, so many musicians I talk to talk about how important that is. But I think if you were to say what is the most important aspect of sight reading, it's it's identifying the rhythm and being able to play it with a pretty high degree of accuracy. And I focus on the written rhythm because, as I like to say, and you know, we, you know, you you live in an area, you know, where there's a major league baseball team. If you go to that baseball stadium, at some point you'll probably hear. Uh, you know, someone clapping one, two, three, and four, and everyone knows to go one and two and three and four. <laughs> and whenever I, so whenever I have a student say, I have trouble with rhythm, 
And, and I'm like, I bet if you were in that baseball stadium, you would get that rhythm too. <laughs> it's like, you yeah. would figure it out. And I bet, and I always tell them, I bet you walk with a steady beat. And I bet you, Absolutely. if you run with a steady, I bet you run with a steady beat. I bet you don't go one, two, three, four, five, six. So I bet you don't walk with, like that unless you're just trying to be funny. But, um, so people, uh, you know, I just, I just call BS when I hear people people say that they don't have good rhythm but i totally understand it when they're learning to read music and but something about the brain just kind of shuts off when we look at that so i want to go over kind of with the idea now maybe not for the absolute beginners <laughs> you know for reading music we may talk about some things that are kind of uh beyond what you've covered so far but i just want to talk about written rhythms and let's just talk about like counting systems you know so we start with a meter, right? So we start off with, uh, I mean, it could, I mean, we, we could get into all kinds of things. We could get into, you know, 13, eight and things like that, but you know, 90% of what we see, <laughs> it's going to be four, four, three, four, two, four, six, eight. I mean, that's probably yeah. like 90% of it right there. Right. So. Well, if you're, if you're looking at what, what we'll call Western European art music. Yes. Okay. That would be our traditional, you know, our classical music, and we look at different regions of the world, okay? The, the yeah. music that is most common here that we consider to be classical music, we'll go there because we're talking about sight reading and we're talking about notes on a page. That's going to be found most in that genre. Yep. That's not to say it's not found in other places, but that's going to be where you see it the most. Right. So with that in mind, uh, the stuff that was written in, in the Americas – uh, mm -hmm. more specifically the United States and in Canada, you're going to see a whole lot of four and a whole lot of two. Yep. When you look at the stuff that was written in say Germany, uh, you'll see some more three. Mm -hmm. Uh, but the cool thing about that, that th this absolutely blows my mind is the physiology and the brain science, the neuroscience behind how we group things yep so one of the one of the courses that i teach right now is on learning and cognition mm -hmm. and the human brain divides everything it sees into groups of two or three wow so if you take a second think about how you say your phone number when you tell somebody your phone number or how you say your address you don't have to say it out loud right but when you say it to people do you break the numbers up into groups of two and three? Yes. Yep. <laughs> yes, you do. And I will tell you, almost everybody does that. And the cool thing is that's a cross-cultural thing. That's something that the brain does. Yep. So when we talk about our groupings of meter, mm -hmm. even our more, it, what we're considering to be a little bit more complex, our sevens, our fives, um, it's all going to be two plus three plus two, three plus two plus two, two plus two plus, you know, it's all going to be grouped that way. And we look for what we call the big beats. And I know I'm going to hold off on big beats because we're going to get to that in a minute. Right. But uh, it's really fascinating to see how those things break down. Right. And as soon as you hear that, and as soon as you identify it, you will be amazed at how you recognize groupings of two and three in nature. Yeah leaves on a plant yep. uh petals I, I mean all of those things they are grouped in either two or three yep yeah now i think i was just thinking i think poison ivy might be five <laughs> and and of course right. you know it's it's the thing we want to avoid anyway <laughs> leaves of three let it be yep <laughs> all right um yeah, you know, so one of the things uh, I recently I did a kind of a music theory overview episode, and mm -hmm. you know, I, one of the category was what I call the fundamentals, and when I talked about meter, I said, you know, there's dozens of time signatures you'll ever see, but to me, you know, I, I really like the way we were taught in that you have simple meter compound or mm -hmm. asymmetrical. And mm -hmm. then you have duple, tri triple, quadruple most of the time. You could occasionally probably stretch that to a quintuple, which, you know, you might say is a triple and a duple you know, <laughs> if you start mixing that in together. But uh, to, to me, it kind of explains a whole lot. So three, eight, three, four, three, two, 
316 can all be counted the same way. They can all be yes. counted in three beats. And just like, but, but we'll also like two, four and six, eight can also be counted the same way. If you realize that six, eight is a duple, a compound duple. Um, mm-hmm. If you're, again, if you're going fast enough, you're going really slow, we might field in two groups of three, you know, <laughs> or something like that. But um, so, so it's kind of just good to, you know, I guess we start off with how are we counting it? And, and so when you're looking at the music, I guess, you know, you have to figure out what are the groups and then you have to kind of find those groups. Now, now one of the things that we're kind of hoping for, and I think most of the time we can count on it (laughs) with, with the music that we're exposed to is that the sheet music is well published, you know, that it's well notated, you know, it's not handwritten where someone has like squeezed one beat. Or, or, or taking one beat and make it look like two and, and taking two beats and make it look like one, you know, or something that just fools the eyes. But usually visually, the longer beats take up more space. So like a half note is going to take up more space in the measure than a quarter note and so right. forth. And and if you have like four sixteenth notes, they're going to be closer together. So, you know, not all the time is it going to be perfect, but we can usually count on those things. So do you have any kind of strategy you'd recommend for like just visually chopping your measure into groups and just finding where those beats are? Uh, absolutely. And that's when I said I was coming back to big beats. Right. Well, here we are. So what, what I do, and I do this when I teach lessons as well, is we will draw a line at, in the music, you mm-hmm. know, especially so you know there, there's a whole method in science to sight reading right right and i know i've i've listened to you talk about it and i know that you you know you've you've got a really good grip on it. and we came from a, a lot from the same philosophies on this stuff right but uh you know you want to look and see what's where the challenge is going to be in that sight reading if, you've, if i've got 30 seconds to look at it first thing i'm looking for is where's that tricky rhythm mm-hmm. and how am i going to get that the mistake people make often, especially young musicians, is they start reading from the upper left and go to the bottom right. That's not necessarily sight reading. That's wasteful. Mm. You know, you want to figure out what's where the problem areas might be, and you want to be able to look across the bar line. But uh, so going back to those big beats mm-hmm. again. So what I would do is, if I had a pencil, this now this would not be a sight reading thing, but I would still touch the notes and I would find where that big beat is going to fall in the measure. Yeah. When I say big beat, I'm referring to downbeat. So beat one, two, three, four. We're saying we're in four, four here. Uh, I'm going to find those beats. Now I could have an eighth note and then three quarter notes and then another eighth note. Right. Right. That would throw everything on the upbeat. Right. Right. Which you and I know that because it's just like learning phonemes, right? When you're learning how to speak yep. or learning how to read, you learn those different phonemes and like, okay, this is what that looks like. This is what it sounds like. And you memorize that. When you yep. learn your addition facts, you same thing. You learn it, you memorize it, and eventually you can give it back. Um, now, you were talking about counting systems. That's one of the things that I find to be very useful is just to see if I'm looking at that, going back to that rhythm, yeah. eighth note, quarter, 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 eighth note. I I already have that tool in my toolbox. I know what that sounds like. Right. But if I didn't, mm-hmm. I would write my big beat down right on the first eighth note because it's the first sound or non-sound that happens. It's the first musical instance in that measure. So yeah. it's one. Mm-hmm. Then I would find two, which is going to be between those quarter notes. Yep. And then three between those quarter notes. Mm-hmm. And then four between the quarter note and the last eighth note. So once I can see that and kind of map that out, the upbeat makes more sense. Yes. Yes. And then, uh, you know, I guess we can get more into subdividing in just a moment. But if you, yeah, I mean, if you want to like account for those in between notes 
Yeah, I mean, there's different different systems that I've heard before. I, I'm a fan of saying and, and if it's 16th notes, oh, yeah. one eanda. But I know I, I still teach out of books that suggest like Tatita, <laughs> which is, you know, uh, and there's I've seen some others before, uh, but that I'm not recalling. But, you know, it seems like everyone has kind of some different systems. And uh, I mean, I've had some students before when it comes to like quarters and eighths, you know, just just getting the difference. I mean, I'm I'm okay early on saying walk, walk, running, running, <laughs> just anything to kind of get an idea of what it's supposed to feel like and so forth. But um, yeah, I so I want to just kind of chase a point that you just said right there, though. You know, you when you see uh, a measure, and, I, and I'll, I'll say it again for those following along. So measure 4-4 four, four, from left to right, be 8th quarter 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 eighth and we would count that one and and three and four and and And. so and (laughs) so you what you said was you know what that looks like you have that tool and i think kind of like you you learn musical terms like you know if you study music long enough you you learn what you know allegro moderato andante adagio you learn what those are I think you can do the same thing with rhythm patterns. You can Absolutely. learn that what a, what that syncopation looks like. Um, you know, one of the things that, that I also want to kind of get into, uh, you know, let's, I mean, we, we can jump around from, <laughs> from the order we were thinking about, but like, mm-hmm. let's just say that you're in a jazz band and mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, actually I just get, had the privilege last week of sitting in with a, with a community jazz with, with a swing band, a big band. And, um, you know, if you haven't played in those before, it's, uh, not as improvisatory as you would think it's fair. You know, a lot of it is written out and the rhythms are exactly cause the whole band has to come together in this certain way. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there are patterns that you almost expect to see if it says a bossa nova pattern, or if it says, um, you, you know, if it's a, a typical swing ba- band pattern, there are, it's probably, I mean, there's honestly probably only about, you know, 15, 20 rhythm patterns that kind of get mixed together. And, and again, not in a hundred percent of what you see, but in a high percentage of what you see And this. And I think if we kind of think about it like that, you learn your basic rhythms, but just like you would learn your tempos, you just like you would learn your major minor diminished augmented chords and, and so forth. You're learning rhythm patterns. is kind of like a word, you know, I, I guess mm-hmm. for lack of better things. So, um, right. what do you think about, uh, I mean, I, I guess I know what you think about it because you've done percussion, but for people who play other instruments of actually drumming out their part, getting away from their instrument and counting out loud as they kind of tap it. So when, when I worked with, middle school and high school uh, doing band programs. And even when I work with elementary kids playing the recorder, God bless, <laughs> um, the the method that I that I use to teach, now I it, it it changes through time, but the the standards on it are count, clap, say, finger, play. Hmm. And it doesn't matter what instrument you're playing. It, you can do that on a string instrument. You can do that on a percussion instrument. You can do that on a wind instrument. You count it first, right? You got it. That has to be done, right? Right. Then you can clap it, or as you were saying, tap it out. Mm-hmm. Then you want to say the names of the notes. Now, every time after that step one where I count it, Everything else, I'm doing at least two things at once, right? Right. Counting it, then I'm clapping it, but I also have to be counting it while I'm clapping it, right? Right. Then when I say it, I'm saying it in rhythm, the rhythm that I just clapped. Yep. Then I'm fingering the notes, and I'm saying the notes that I'm fingering, so I'm reinforcing those notes. And then I'm playing it, and all the stuff I did before is happening here. Right. And it's kind of like building bricks uh, or, or building a house. It's like you, you kind of start with your bricks, you put the mortar in. Um, I tell everyone you, you start with rhythm for one thing. It's, it's the one thing that every musician does across the globe. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks about rhythm. It's like, um, and then the other thing is, 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 is what keeps you together with someone else. Cause you're probably not playing the same notes, 
but that is correct. and you might not be playing the same rhythm but you need to be counting the same way you have to you have to be solid with your rhythm who you're playing with needs to be solid with their rhythm and if the music is well well written well conceived that's when the magic happens is when you have those things locking together i mean it's it's a puzzle and that's yeah that's how you get the picture of the puzzle is the parts have to lock together um yeah, it's you can look at it as a recipe. You can look. I mean, there's so many different ways to look at it. When you think about it, there are entire books, cookbooks written using five ingredients. Mm-hmm. How can I make so many different things using only five ingredients? But look at the piano behind you. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. How many pitches do I have? Well, right there, you've got 88. Yep. I can take a variations of 88 and do the entire history of music. Right. I mean, I mean, you've got 12. They just keep repeating. (laughs) Exactly. It's kind of cool. Yeah. So there's a, there's a few other things that I know we we could really get into, but uh, again, I would kind of urge everybody, you know, this isn't, if you're just getting started with rhythm, you know, you definitely want to, uh, you know, you want to pursue it far enough to kind of learn your basic notes and your rest. You want to learn about ties and you also learn about, you know, how, how the dots work and so forth. But I, I want to just get into a term that you'll eventually talk about, which is syncopation. And I've heard mm-hmm. it expressed a couple of different ways. But, you know, wh- how would you define syncopation? With rhythm. Yep. I mean, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Syn- syncopation is the stuff that keeps it moving. And right. you can have straight quarter notes and if they are played musically, they can be viewed as syncopated. Mm-hmm. The syncopation to me are kind of the non-written emphasis or accented notes. That's kind of the way that we, and you were talking about swing earlier. Syncopation is used very often when people are talking about swing. They talk about the syncopated rhythm. And no, a syncopated rhythm is kind of like saying like ATM machine. Right. right. <laughs> the M already stands for machine. So you're saying a automatic teller machine machine. Yep. <laughs> but syncopated rhythm. Sorry, back on that. Syncopated rhythm. It, it's I mean, it, it literally means with rhythm. Right. So that's the, the goal of syncopation is moving stuff forward. Right. We tend to bring it up, though, when we're talking about an emphasis either on weak beats or in between beats. At least that's how I hear it. But, you know, sometimes it just gets called groove, (laughs) you know, or something like that. But, you know, I mean, that could be a tangent on its own. I I don't remember if it was at JU or if it was, uh, you know, at at North Carolina School of the Arts. But it was when when I learned that you'll get a better groove if you don't just have what you think is a groovy rhythm and and everybody doing the same rhythm. But if you actually put something straight against it, like it's the one thing I love sh- when I teach Scott Joplin, when I teach ragtime, one of those hands is right on the beat. It's everything quarter notes on every beat. It's, it's what goes against it that creates the mm-hmm. groove. But if, but if the left hand matched all of the strike points of the right, you would lose something. And, yes. uh, it, and that's, that's the really cool thing. It's like, if you hear a funk band, you know, um, if, if the bassist and the guitarist is all over the place, the drummer's probably right on it. In it. <laughs> yep. Yep. They have to be. You, you've done some funk band. I mean, you wrote a song, you wrote a cover, leaving on the funk plane. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And that, that is the thing about, uh, you know, really not just, not just funk, but any kind of groove, there has to be some type of glue. Right. If everybody's just going off on their own tangents, that's all. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. But if you have something that's holding it all together, then everything else that comes over it mm-hmm. becomes like the icing or the you know whatever you want to call it. It becomes the thing that makes everything more interesting. And uh, I'll give you a musical example when people talk about you know simplicity versus complexity right yeah. one of my favorite bands the beatles mm-hmm. right? everybody gave ringo Starr a hard time about not being a great drummer right mm-hmm. ringo was very on the beat he was very simplistic you know not the uh, he didn't do what many considered to be more creative stuff 
But take that for just one second and imagine you took somebody like, say, Neil Pert, because a lot of people know him, too, from Rush. Okay, so different eras, I know. But imagine if you took Neil Pert and put him with the Beatles. Yep. What would that sound like? (laughs) It wouldn't sound like the Beatles anymore. No. Um, (laughs) You had mentioned Zeppelin earlier, right? Yeah, John. Put Ringo with Zeppelin. Yep. (laughs) It work. And there's a reason it doesn't work. Because of how that groove is established, what Ringo lays out is perfect for the guys he's working with. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's one of the critical things of groove. If you listen to, I'm a big jazz fan, you can listen to different periods of guys like Miles Davis when they had different guys playing drums for him or different guys playing bass for him. And you can hear the difference. Yep. Because even though it's still the same main artist in Miles, everything around him when it's different that groove is different right i get i think the only other thing that i wanted to you know just kind of set as a basic just to talk about is just the concept of swing and it's Mm -hmm. funny it's like one one of the things i heard from i think it was from mr mcneilan in an orchestra was you know there's a stereotype that like string players can't swing (laughs) but uh you know there there was a time where Mm -hmm you you could be you could be a pops player you could be a symphony player you weren't expected to be both but as orchestras have shrank over the years and budgets have shrank uh i mean you you're just not you you're going to have very limited opportunities if you can't play pop and classical music if you you know it's the same players that are going to do both now um I, I i've thought about swing a lot over the years and and you know one of the shows i'm going to be um conducting later this year is the wizard of oz and all you have to do is just say we're off to see the wizard dun 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 you know i mean it's six eight time but that's your swing feel it's just the basically Mm -hmm. go skipping actually it occurred to me just a couple years ago it is the rhythm of a swing set if you're if you're on a swing and you're in your high and you go and you go forward and back and forward and back you have that in between it actually is Mm -hmm. is that but we're um, the way I define it is instead of cutting a beat in half, you're really cutting it in thirds. It's like Third, based yeah. off of triplets, you know, so it's two third, one third. But, uh, you know, if I, one of my softwares I use is Logic Pro and it has a bunch of different swing patterns. And I think it maybe it has to do with the fact that, you know, people are not machines and, and, and drummers might be have a tighter swing, a looser swing and and Mm -hmm. so forth yeah it's uh a lot of swing is about the placement of the space and one one of the things that people tend to focus on is what's what's happening with the music right right Uh, to me if you flip that on its head to me swing is more what's not happening with the music it's the stuff that's that's happening in the space right you know because when we think about just straight eighth notes right one and two and three and four and or one a two a three a four. it's all about where that's leading where that next thing is going it's the space between yep. going to the next thing one to me straight eighth notes each one can have its own identity whereas a swung eighth note the second note is leading to the third note yeah you know each each note is going somewhere it's swinging there yes <laughs> uh when when we're getting to a point where we're a little bit more advanced with rhythm and we're starting to see a lot of notes in between the beats so it could be a lot of 16ths could be like dotted eighth 16ths or maybe we're getting to like 32nd notes or 16th note triplets or you know we haven't even really talked about tuplets i mean this is more about written rhythm than it is like an overview of all of rhythm but uh you know tuplets is just the way to say i'm I'm gonna create whatever i want and and uh i'll I'll often pull out chopin's 24 preludes to just show things like that there's a 22 lit there's a 17 lit there's a bunch of deck tuplets uh there i mean it's just basically the the way i explain is chopin didn't necessarily want you to go faster he just had 22 notes he wanted to get in this measure 
and you know if you want to slightly rush it fine but he he probably just thought I, it was his way of like not changing the time signature just you know, get those get those notes in. <laughs> like a musical mother-in-law. Right. You know, has all the stuff it wants to tell you and knows that it's limited on time. So now that's a that's a fine thing for me to say when I'm talking about a piece that you play all by yourself. If I was to see a 22 lit, uh, I mean hopefully not in an orchestra piece, but if I was to see it in an ensemble or or let's maybe not go quite that crazy. Let's just say, you know, something with a lot of notes in between that's kind of common triplets 16th notes you know maybe some dotted notes you're seeing all of this stuff what are some tricks that you have is it just going back to the pencil and just marking the big beats but what are some ways that you use to kind of intuitively grasp what it is you're seeing and how to play it quickly um one of the big things that that can be distracting especially as you're as you're coming up and learning the stuff are the lines mm-hmm. so you know when i look at eighth notes and i look at 16th notes i go okay 16th notes that's twice as fast as eighth notes well it depends on you know the time signature it depends on you know the tempo marking yeah uh, it could be you know if you're playing adagio for strings uh it's not you know <laughs> the 16th notes can be quite slow right uh, so the trick is forget about all of the lines. If you're looking at 128th notes or 64th notes, just in your mind, block out everything that is confusing and look at it as if it were 16th notes, if that's the most comfortable read for you, or look at it as if it were eighth notes, count it that way and break it down like that. Now, once I know where my big beats are, and I can look at you know at my dotted rhythms, and I can figure out how I'm going to break it down. And it could be if I'm using a more complex beater, meter, I might actually kind of lean on an eighth note as a big beat, but it's not really a big beat. But I'm guiding it that way in my counting. Mm-hmm. Now, what you were saying about things like twenty-two lits and you know seventeen lits or whatever we want to call those, typically we call that a cadenza, right? right. <laughs> Or who is it said, and, meet at the beat? <laughs> right, right, right. I will find you here. Right. right? And before here, there's going to be a look and a nod. Yep. And then here. Yep. Um, and probably with two hands, right. by the way, the conductor. Probably two hands. Yes. Those kind of things are, they, they really are not as challenging as they look. Right. Now, that's not to say that they're easy, because they're not, mm-hmm. but they're deliberate. The reason the composer wrote it that way was that was exactly what the what the artist wanted to say. Mm-hmm. And our job as the performer, or as the conductor who is interpreting the artwork, and I use artwork as a, I mean, it is, it is a audible art. Yep. Our job is to interpret what it is we see. And we need to interpret it it, often if the composer is going to write that complex a rhythm, that is very specific to what they wanted. Right. Right. Uh, The rhythm that I, you know, and I was going back to talking about phonemes, right? Right. Terminator. Yeah. Right. Now, if I look at that and I, and I try to count it, Right, one e uh e uh. Right, right. It looks so weird. Yep. But at the same point, when I when I when I do it, I go, oh, that's Terminator rhythm. Right. And then I know what that looks like. I know what it sounds like. And the next time I see it, I go, oh yeah, Terminator rhythm. Got it. Right. Um, you were talking about counting systems. Yeah. And I come at that in a very unique way. Okay. So I went from teaching. AP music theory in a high school for five years Mm -hmm. to teaching kindergarten, first and second graders. Mm -hmm. I had never taught kids that young. And the first thing that I realized as far as counting went was that they were learning how to count. And the littles, they were counting things like by saying strawberry. Yes. Huckleberry. 
Mm-hmm. And that's cute. I'm not going to say it's not cute. It's adorable. <laughs> but my thought was, if a kindergartner can see, a, which, by the way, doesn't come in as far as national standards of music, those rhythms don't come in until third grade. But if a kindergartner can see an eighth note and two sixteenth notes <laughs> and know how to how to say it properly... Yeah. Who am I to tell them they're wrong? Right. (laughs) Now, what I could do is I could say, wow, you know, that does say strawberry, but it also says one and a. Mm -hmm. And then we can go back and forth like I'll say strawberry, you say one and a, you know, (laughs) and and do that because my thought uh, going from high school to elementary school was. I want to teach a counting system that these kids will then be able to bring to middle school, mm-hmm. bring to high school. Uh, you know, and I know vocalists a lot like to use the one to la talito, two to, you know. Right. And again, it doesn't necessarily mean one is wrong and one is right. If it sounds the same when you're playing it, the listener has no idea how the artist is counting it. Right. It just needs to be correct. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the same thing with, you know, numbers. When you're sing, sight singing numbers versus solfege. Um, right. Versus I mean, movable, again, it was, and and... it was Dr. Shermer that said, just sing the right note. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's all that matters. But so you're talking about, uh, we talked about earlier about kind of collecting rhythm patterns, you know, like the, the original one we talked about. Well, Terminator, that'd be another one. You, you know, so after you've counted it out and you figure out what it is, you now look at it and you kind of learn what it is. But I thought about a couple of other things that, that I think these are shortcomings that I've found with my students when they struggle with rhythm. And that is that they're trying to just see the rhythm and play the rhythm, but when we're listening to music and we're not trying to figure it out, we actually feel the rhythm. It's like there's a physical connection with the rhythm. There, so we we also, of course, hear how it sounds, but we feel it. And I think the thing that really helped my rhythm more than anything is when I learned how to conduct, how to conduct mm-hmm. basic beat, beat patterns. In fact, I'm sure if, if, if we had grown up in an era where everyone had a camera in their pocket and was filming everything, if you had watched me closely when we were sight reading, you would probably seen me kind of just swaying in a conducting pattern as I was playing. And, um, so, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're trying to learn a rhythm pattern, like if it's something you haven't recognized, there's probably something to actually moving the body to the beat. And absolutely. And, and that, that's, that is one of the things that is kind of hard sitting at the piano. It's like, I don't know if I, you know, if I get them to bob their head or, you know, just get, get them to let the, the shoulder carriage swing a little bit because you're trying to keep the technique sound and so forth. And, and, and every limb is busy doing something, you know, except for maybe mm-hmm. your left foot. But, you know, everything is going. But physicalizing that rhythm and I think, you know, probably connecting the way it sounds, listening to the way certain rhythms sound and then finding what they look like so that you're getting that vocabulary of written rhythm patterns. But, uh, I I mean, feel free to comment on any of that that you want to. Absolutely. I kind of feel like once it, once it's been broken down Mm -hmm. and you can see, you know, what that's supposed to sound like, what it looks like, um, it tends to make a whole lot more sense. You know, uh, when you were talking about the piano, a lot of jazz piano players will use their heel. Yeah. Keep a beat. They'll use their head. They'll use the, you know, like you're saying with their shoulders. Um, and one of the things with beginning band students, we go spend a lot of time teaching them to tap their toe, which is kind of funny because a lot of times they are way off beat. But it's not necessarily about being on beat or off beat when we're learning that skill. It's learning that that is meaningful. Yeah. Eventually does come together. Right. And, uh, you know, and how to tap your toe to the rhythm. 
you know, because a lot of, especially when you get syncopated, that toe gets thrown off. Right. <laughs> um, and that's one of the tricky things is how to keep that toe staying on the steady beat. Right. It, it takes time. It takes practice, but it happens. And I will say that's actually, to me, one of the coolest things uh, with young musicians is when you can see that click. Yeah. It doesn't happen at the same time. Right. There's kids that won't, it, that won't click for them for years and years of playing. That's okay. Because once it does, man, it's awesome. Right. This has been uh, this has been a great conversation and a and and a little bit more in depth than I mean not more than I was hoping for but more than I was I was thinking we were going to get into it but it's really great stuff there are definitely some things I want to talk about so one of the things that I thought we should mention especially when it comes to written rhythms and maybe well I'm I was going to say maybe this is only helpful for those who play with two hands like pianists harpists and and so forth. Uh, or marimbas, you know, people with, with, with mallets and all that. But I do think when it comes to polyrhythms, there's, there, there's probably a benefit, like you might be in band and you might know that everyone's playing eighth notes, but your part has triplets, you know, so it's probably helpful to know how it fits in. So I just want to talk about some common polyrhythms. And the thing that I love about is, um, the, the way I understand it, is polyrhythms you need to understand the resultant rhythms at least that's how i call it which is when you when you hear that hear it all together what's a single rhythm that kind of describes it and mm. then you can you can focus on the parts of that that create the triplet or the the eighth note or the 16th note and and so forth and and if you kind of understand the resultant rhythm it doesn't matter if, for example, it's two against three or three against two. It's just you're just switching mm -hmm. like in the on a piano, you're switching when the right hand plays and when the left hand plays. Um, now, two over three and three, three against two, I can offer several things that I've found to be helpful. I, I like Carol of the Bells, which is la da da da, one, two and three. Ba, da, da, da. And uh, if it's three against two on the piano, it's, uh, it's both right, left, right, both right, left, right. If it's two against three, it's both left, right, left, both left, right, left. Some people like Chim Chimmery, Chim Chimmery. <laughs> Any other tunes for two, three against two that you like? Uh, I mean, what I like to do with any type of polyrhythm is break it down yep. between the hands so you can see where the three is, right? Yep. And you can see where the two is. So here's here's two hands. Yep. All right. So you were saying the three polyrhythm, right? One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And now I'm gonna put the two in. One, two, three, right? You're yep. thinking this. Right. One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, one, two, yep. one. Right? right and it's being able to identify and if you and as a drummer we do a lot of that to where i need to be able to hear and make sure that that two is actually going to stay as a steady two and that three is going to stay a steady three a lot of times if i make a mistake it's going to be that i'm rushing one of those things right tends to be people rush eighth notes and drag triplets well right. that screws up your rhythm right so so yeah, that's and and it's always kind of cool because that's you know we would we would do those things where we would play three against two and then switch it one two three one two three one two one two one two one two one two three one two three one two one two one you know right um and I know when it, the other common polyrhythms another one a big one is four against three and three against four and then you know there's also like five against three and three against five and um, now I know, you know, being a college student and learning some rhythms, you, you've got some ways of describing it that would, I would have to put an E on this episode for explicit. I'm not going to say those. I'm no, no. <laughs> um, four against three, it, it was some point I realized, you know, growing up in the nineties, it was the techno rhythm. It's the dun, 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 bum, 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 bum. Just take out the last two, dun, dun, the last two of that pattern, and it's four against three. But but I'll offer kind of an alternate to the one that you taught me a long time ago, which is pass the salt and pepper. Pass the salt and pepper, which is four against three. Again, if it's like right hand four, left hand three, it'd be both right left right left right <laughs> yeah yeah 
What do you have? A, do you have a family friendly one for five against three and three against five? I've got one for five against four. That's family friendly. Okay. Okay. What's that one? So that is shut the door, you silly person. Okay. Okay. So shut the door, you silly person. Shut the door, you silly person. One. Nice. Just a couple of other thoughts. I want to just talk about. What are some ways that, uh, you know, that someone who's trying to like either on their own or supplementing on their own, wanting to get better at written rhythms, you know, just getting better at that. Um, there's a couple of ways that come to mind. And one of them would be consider joining, a, you know, a, a community orchestra or a community band or some kind of an ensemble that has a need for percussion. And if you're in a, even a mid-sized city, you can probably find one. You can probably, and, oh, yeah. it, might, and it might not they might tell you well we've got plenty for one but you know we're we're doing this one piece that calls for an extra percussionist and if you want to sit in for that that would be great um i got to play percussion first of all i was required to take it as part of my degree i i took you know with with the same teacher you did ken every and um this first semester and i also got to play in percussion ensemble but uh you know also in orchestra there there was one time that I guess we didn't have that many percussionists. I feel like you had graduated already. It was my senior year. So I think you were you'd already gone. You were a little ahead of me. And only the, in college. Uh, only, <laughs> and uh in orchestra the that year, I think there was only a couple of percussionists, but we did the St. Paul suite uh by Gustav mm -hmm. Holser, one of them. I think there's a couple of those, but no, it was, it was just the one. There's the English folk song suites. There's a couple of those, but we did St. Paul Suite, and um, you know our, the conductor, Mr. Mack. He had, it, there was only two horn parts needed, and we had three players in rehearsal at that time. And he said, "Would you like to go play timpani?" Which so I did, and that was really cool. Getting to to actually play timpani, uh, you know, in the orchestra, just to have that experience, you know, reading and. Uh, mm -hmm. You also learn a few things about that. Like, for example, if it sounds on time to you, it's probably late to the conductor. So you've got to anticipate it a little bit. That's a fun little challenge. So that was one thing. But then the other thing I just wanted to, to ask your opinion on is, are there some books or some kinds of methods that, that, have been published that you think are that do a good job of going from very basic rhythms to gradually more complicated ones. So yes, there, I mean, there is what drummers consider to be the best book on syncopation. It is called syncopation. It's by Ted Reed. It's been in print for God knows how long, probably 60, 70 years now. I mean, it's been, it's been around a long time. And in that, there's a bunch of different ways to read it. You can do, I mean, it's just, a, it's literally a bunch of syncopated rhythm. Mm -hmm. And it builds up from straight quarter notes to adding eighth notes uh, to syncopated eighth notes, uh, being on beat, off beat. Uh, then uh, with your jazz drummers, they tend to call them longs and shorts. Uh, you've, you know, and you can do it to where you play long notes on the snare drum, short notes on the bass drum, or vice versa. And it's the idea is to make it sound like a conversation. Wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, Mitchell Peters has has some really good books uh, on counting rhythm. There's a Buddy Rich book. Uh, Buddy Rich is one of my favorite drummers. Uh, he's got a book on uh, odd rhythms and odd meters. Uh, that's pretty cool. Hmm. Uh, Louis Belson also has one. Um, I'll tell you the thing that I used the most, and this sounds crazy, and if you can get your hands on one, by all means, uh, I learned how to read all of my odd rhythms and count all of my uh, odd rhythms by using a phone book. Mm. Um, and the trick to that is you set your metronome slow. Yep. You know, quarter note at maybe 60, probably even slower than that. Yep. And if the first number of the phone number is four, that's four sixteenth notes. Mm-hmm. If it's zero, that can either be a rest or it can be a 10, Yep. you know? Uh, so, you know, if you say like 404-992, I would play, you know, 16th notes, rest, 16th notes, and then a nine, and then another nine, and two eighth notes. Right. But I do it all to the steady beat of that metronome, 
I'll tell you what, you'll get you'll get some really, really one great hands really quick. Yep. And and two, a really deep, profound understanding of rhythmic accuracy. Right. Uh, there's a wonderful app that's out now called Tonal Energy. I don't know if you have. I recommended that one on my apps musician use. I haven't used it myself, but I, I saw all the reviews for it. Oh, it is fantastic. Uh, so I have two children, both musicians. Uh, one's in college and one's a senior in high school. Uh, they work on tonal energy pretty regularly. And I'll tell you, it the effects are, are m- much more natural than what we had to do. I remember sleeping with a metronome under my pillow. I don't recommend that. <laughs> I mean, it worked. Yeah. It worked. I can pick out a tempo from anywhere now, but tonal energy seems to be a little bit healthier for my children. Right. <laughs> uh, on some of the books that you recommended, like the, the syncopation book, I assume that it's popular enough that there's probably, again, for those who don't who are doing this without a teacher, that, that you probably find an audio reference like on YouTube or somewhere. Um, oh, it- yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, especially, and, and I'll go back to the, I, I kind of started with, with the, the meat and potatoes, which would be the right. Ted Reed book. Yeah. That is literally every, any drum teacher that you have. Yep. If they don't recommend that you own that book, probably not a drum teacher you need. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm seriously yep. like that is, that is like, I don't want to say the Bible because that's a pretty impressive book as well. But uh, I'll say for drummers, that's got all the stuff you need in it. And it looks so simple, which is what makes it so good. <laughs> right. Nice. Um, um, anything we haven't talked about that uh, about reading rhythms that you thought we should have mentioned? Um, I mean, the, the best thing I can say is it's just take your time with it mm-hmm. uh, and it's practice. Yeah. A lot of times when people sight read, when when they go to an audition, like if you're in middle school or high school or college and you're playing an audition, they are always going to want to hear you sight read because hopefully everybody who comes in there has already prepared the etude. Right. Right. Anybody, you know, I can hear, and that's, you know, when we talk about, you know, with, with my kids doing college auditions, I said, look, everybody who goes in is going to kill the etude. Right. Because they've had lots of time to practice and to prepare and to work with a teacher and to get the proper interpretation and to go online and hear recordings and all that other stuff. The kid that I want is the kid who can pick up something that's maybe a little bit easier than that etude and make sense out of it. Yeah. And the, when sight reading is judged uh, as part of an audition, over half of it is rhythm. Yeah. And you, you got to figure, if I play the first note correct, the last note correct, every rhythm in between correct mm-hmm. i can go on to all state yeah <laughs> because essentially all i need is a, is a, a between a 60 and a 70 percent yeah to go on just on that now i know i'm nailing the etude right yeah i'm nailing the scales but if i can figure out that's why that rhythm is so important and when people sight read a lot of times now when you're sight reading as part of a competitive thing they'll set a metronome for you and they'll they'll have you go with it when you're practicing sight reading you don't have to practice at the speed in which you are going to play the song ultimately you can play it slower right you know the important thing is that you stay steady throughout yeah so with those rhythms if if playing slower helps then do that yeah you know the goal is to not stop mm mm-hmm. mhm uh, I've I've actually for sight reading I've I've encouraged two approaches. It's, it's borrowed from my own practice. I have sight reading where I go as accurate with the rhythm and as accurate with the notes as I can, and I'll go as slow as I need. And then I'll have some things that I that I'll actually find what is the tempo supposed to be, and I'll put the metronome on. And if I if I think I can play it, 
I'll do it, but it stays on time. Like if I miss beat two and three and four and one, but get the next beat two, I will just jump in. But you have to stay. It's like, mm-hmm. like trying to jump on a moving train. It's like, you have to jump on the opportunity when it's there. You can't stop it. You can't slow it down. So I found that helpful. And I do that because that is exactly what I face when I, go into a vocal lesson <laughs> and they've been working mm-hmm. on their piece for four or five weeks and they're up to tempo and hey david play this and i have to and i know the the one thing i can't do is play at a different speed and i can't i can't play bass notes that will throw them off so i'm focusing on the left hand and i'm focusing on staying counting and looking ahead and just jumping in when i think i can grab something so just thought i'd yeah. throw that in there um, so I know that you, uh, you're not super active on any of the socials as far as I can tell. So I don't know if, if this is even a question for you, but, uh, I mean, is there anywhere you would encourage people to follow you or, or do you have a website or anything you'd like to share? Um, well, right now I am just, I, you know, I, I still have, I had mentioned earlier in my book race around the world. Okay. Uh, imagine if you had the amazing race, mm-hmm. but instead of going to countries you're playing folk songs from different countries um and you're doing it as a duet because you know teamwork yep um it's uh i wrote the book about 10 years ago uh we're in a a second printing right now it's it's great stuff um and that can be found uh well they sell it at west music they sell it at a couple of different spots um beaten path publications uh brent hall is the guy who publishes the book and i highly recommend beaten path uh lots of great stuff they have lots of great sacred music they have lots of great elementary music and small chamber stuff um so that that's that's what i would recommend actually be, to, as far as following me look at beaten path uh, b-e-a-t-i-n path great Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, reminiscing, but also just, you know, getting to the fascinating topic that I know we really only scratched the surface of, but it's an important tool, reading rhythms and, you know, getting better at that. So thank you so much for chatting today about that. Man, I want to end this with one thought, man. Oh, sure. this This was something that I had a teacher tell me once, and it was when you're, what we were talking about with the polyrhythms, that's the stuff that is often too hip for the room. Mm hmm and when you realize that you are too hip for the room, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> nice. And that's going to wrap up episode number 38. If you have any thoughts or questions, you can send me a message at my website at davidlanemusic.com contact, or you can leave me a voice message at speakpipe.com slash musician toolkit. By the way, I did begin checking out the Tonal Energy app since recording that conversation, and it really is impressive. You might want to check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or anyone you know that could use help with the rhythm. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a five-star rating and a review if you're so inclined. And if you're on YouTube, please give this video a thumbs up and make sure that you are subscribed. Remember to check out Fonz as an app if you have a private studio of any kind. It will help you coordinate your schedule and payment retrieval and avoid spending more than really a few minutes each month on any kind of admin for your lessons. The link for a free trial is in my show notes, so check it out. And that's going to do it today. Thank you so much for listening and for checking out this podcast, and I'll be back with you again next week.